I want to wish each and every you one a very, very blessed and joyful Christmas. The text is a, today is about the Magi. And they came from the East, the Magi, and they brought with them gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Name the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So in our Byzantine liturgy, we actually have the kings arrive on uh, on uh, the 25th of December on Christmas Day. Of course, in reality, it probably took them longer than that to get there. When we think about the splendor of the season and the birth of our Lord, we know that the visit of the three magi was prophesied in their reading of the stars. So some people say, well, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't we believe in astrology, but we can follow astronomy. And of course, there's astronomy all over the Bible, but the, these kings, they were prophet kings. Jesus himself was a prophet king. So it's not unusual that the prophet kings would show up at the birth of this great wonder, the prophet king. So they came and they go what was fit for a king. They brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The gold obviously is for his royalty. Frankincense is for his funeral and myrrh is to anoint a king. So if you go to uh, France, uh, the mother church of France is not Notre Dame in Paris, that's the parish cathedral in Ile de France. But names is where the royal oil is kept. And then of course they are hopeful, some people, the royal type people, of the restoration of the king in France so they can use that holy oil. So our main discussion today in the homily is that the prophecies about Jesus at his birth. So there's a big argument in the gospel with Herod about he says he say you are a king. Herod says and he says, Well you say I am a king. But Jesus knew very well he was a king, and it was a threat to the regime, because they were not of the royal line of David, Herod and that, that group. They were not Hebrews, they were Greeks. They might have pretended to be Hebrews. And it scared them when this prophecy came along, because this would be a legitimate king of the true line of David. But of course, what do we know about David the king? When he was young, he wrote psalms and was very holy with God. And he got older, we had sort of sorted uh, relationships. But he was still the promised one. And when he lost his first child, he did his penance in sackcloth and ashes. So he was a repentant king. With that repentance, we are assured of the line of David. 
And then his son was Saul, he was very wise. So, so the third sign of prophecy in the gospel today is myrrh. We uh, sometimes have incense uh, myrrh, and it comes from a plant in the Near East. And right now, it's very hard to get because of all the disturbance there and the wars and everything. But I understand, I don't know this is a fact, there's only one family that uh, collects this myrrh from these bushes or trees, wherever they are. It's a very fine aroma. Of course, you know who buys most of the best incense and everything is Russia. They seem to beat the market. Now, this myrrh is always a sign of death or royalty. And actually, when we, in the Byzantine church, when we anoint a king, we use the chrism. And I keep chrism here in the tabernacle with the blessed sacrament. The most second holy thing in the church is chrism. And I noticed when I was in... Um, Uh, Olympia at the nun's place, the priest there, Father Lawrence, he has a very elaborate bottle he puts the myrrh in, or the chrism, and he keeps a candle lit before it. Before, because in the church we know the other, besides the three persons in one God being in the Blessed Sacrament, we know the Holy Spirit is in the myrrh. And the bishop consecrates that usually on Holy Thursday during Holy Week. Mechism. But the myrrh, in the Byzantine rite, any priest can make myrrh. And when do we do that? When we come to anoint you when you're going to fall asleep in the Lord. The priest, first thing he does is he takes fresh olive oil and he blesses it and he anoints you. The true way that we should take care of our deceased members of our community is to wash them, anoint them with oil, and then then put them in their robes, whatever they're supposed to going to wear, maybe a shroud, and then lay them to rest. When a priest dies, they wash him. Then priests go to anoint him and they use chrism. And uh, <clears throat> then they put him in his priestly robes, put his blessing cross in his hand, as he's a mitre archpriest or one of those kind. They put the crown on, his crown on him. And Bishop put the crown on him. At the funeral, and a priest, the priest's funeral is the original funeral Lay people usually have uh, prayers, but they, they have a funeral rite, but it's not the funeral. It seems like here in the United States, uh, the Byzantine Church has adopted sort of a Roman practice of having a, a liturgy at a funeral. Actually, liturgies for the dead are the seventh day, the 40th day, and the first year. 
You can have others if you wish. But those are the important ones. By the 40th day, the journey should be over. We don't have purgatory for all eternity like they have. We don't do that. So at the end of the funeral of a priest, and the layman, when they bury him, he faces, I think he faces the people, no, the altar, but a priest faces the people. It's very interesting what they do. First of all, they take fresh oil, they bless it. They pour it on his face, his hands, and finally all over him. But when they do that, they take the R, the veil from the Eucharistic chalice, and cover his face because he has left this world and he's on the other side where he sees reality. And of course, they anoint his hands because they're the hands of a priest. They take the little veils from the chalice and, and uh, discuss and they cover his hands. Then they put more oil on him. And then monks, they put their scapular on them, dress them in their habit, put their scapular on them, and we anoint them with oil too. That's the way it's done. Because these were temples of the Holy Spirit. So the anointing of bringing oil to Jesus Christ uh, signaled that he was a priest, he was a prophet, and he was a king. And of course, they, that's why the debate arises among the Jewish community, because the powers that be, the politicians, Herod and that crowd, they're afraid. These wise men come and they give these prophecies and they're afraid. And they call for their wise men. They call them to the temple and say, what did this mean? And this is what the wise, this is what they told them. A very telling time. So I think about the other people involved with the Holy Family, St. Joseph, our Blessed Lady. And when these prophets brought these gifts, in our icon of the Holy Family, I mean, in the, the, the nativity, the prophets are not there, but they've been there. And you see the three gifts on the steps. And they're wondering what this child is going to be. And then we think in the prophecies of Isaiah, and all this week we've been singing the liturgy, Emmanuel, God who is with you. And so the anointing of Christ is recognition, first of all, of his divinity, his royalty, and his prophecy. Now, what prophecy is the greatest prophecy that we find in the birth of Jesus Christ? It has to do with us. So yesterday in the liturgy, we celebrated the preparation for this day, 
and it's a feast of the Father, and we use the liturgy of St. Basil. It's probably the most telling liturgy uh, of the, uh, around Christmas, because by today, Christmas is technically accomplished. But yesterday it was happening. Christ was born in humility of the poor, but very highly placed people of the house of David and of the priestly class. Mary was both of the house of David and the priestly class. Joseph was of the house of David. That meant they were royalty. I was, you know, I'm a very great fan of the Queen. And I read an article about a guy in Australia, I forget his name. And he was very content because he was in line for the throne about, you know, 67th or something, but he was in Australia. That must have been he was some distant cousin to one of the royals, not necessarily the Queen. But if, if everything got blown up and he was the last one in the succession, and you got to remember the succession on the throne, uh, you know, in England is over a thousand years. Remarkable. The succession of Jesus Christ before he even came to be he was always with the Father is truly over a thousand years. If you go back to Adam, Adam was a king priest. He built an altar and prayed to God. That's two things you look for, is if around the prophet is there an altar built and do they intercede with God. Always look for those things you read your Old Testament. Davidic line came all the way down, almost muffed it. But we read the genealogy of Jesus Christ. There's two of them, they're both different. But they all, the both of them tell us he came from this royal priestly line. The true father of Jesus Christ was God the Father, whom he never left. When the priest incenses the altar, you don't hear this prayer. He says it, but he says it sort of to himself. And your it says, when your body was in the tomb, when your soul was in an underworld, Christ their God was the same side with the right hand of the Father, fulfilling all things. So the priest and the little altar here and the big one in the church. He, he incense that. He, he's offering prayer and adoration to the Trinity. And he's preparing for a sacrifice. So the fathers say this too about the birth of Christ. You've heard me say it before. The fathers say that Mary was the oven in which the Eucharistic bread was prepared. Because Christ was the Eucharistic bread, the original bread of the Eucharist. But you know, he's always present 
in the Eucharistic bread once the priest says the prayers. And in the Eastern Church, we don't have just to say the words that consecrate. We have to say the whole Eucharistic prayer because we don't claim to know exactly what moment. But if I would put a bet on it, I would say it's when we invoke the Holy Spirit that it changes. But we do not deal with that. We say it changes. The bread and wine become the body and blood, soul, and divinity, Jesus Christ, that was born of the Blessed Virgin Mary, that suffered on the cross, and is glorified in the resurrection. Well, yesterday, I always, this Easter always, I mean, Christmas always reminds me of Easter, because without Christmas, there can't be an Easter. And there is, oh, it reminds me also of the Holy Virgin, because without the Virgin, you would not have a human body. And without the human body, there not can be not a Eucharist. So that's why the fathers say she baked the bread for the Holy Eucharist, for the bread of life. This is a very nuanced feast. And, to, and now where does prophecy come in? Jesus' whole life was prophetic. But who was he prophesying about as us? Now Christ's body is he's the anointed one, which means he's full of divinity, the divine energy. He also gives us a participation in the divine energies, the life of grace. He does that through his body, which is the primal sacrament of the church. So every gesture, sacramental gesture of the church is the gesture of Christ. The priest, when he celebrates the liturgy, he puts on special vestments because it's not priest at the altar, at the altar it's Christ. It's hard to remember that all the time. The priest should really be attentive when he celebrates the liturgy. That's why the fellows and people that serve must not distract him. And when he consecrates the Eucharist, and he gives you holy communion, that life that is in the body of Christ comes into you. For you too, we know that Christ is the hypostatic union. You're also a hypostasis of Christ because the life that's in him comes to you through the bread and wine. I read something very interesting. I'm reading about early Christianity, the Constantinian age and things like that. I'm always trying to deepen my knowledge and how it can reflect in what I preach. As you know, when Constantine came to the throne, he defeated his rival at the Movian Bridge, which is just outside of Rome. And his rival died and fell in the water and drowned. They were trying to retreat. They made a little bridge, and it fell apart, and they drowned. Christ comes on the scene. I mean, Constantine comes on the scene 
And we are actually very much the Constantinian church, especially if we're the Byzantine church. Not only in our liturgy, but in our history and our theology. The commentator in the history book says, Constantine found an empire that was pagan and making sacrifices of people and children because they thought that way they could appease the pagan gods and Rome would endure. Now this commentator says, Christ came and he was a sacrifice. He died for all of us. But that, and so it was easy, not easy, but at least logical for those people to transfer their thinking to the true sacrifice of God the Father when he sent the Son. This made Christianity, one of the reasons, bloom all over. By the fourth century, it was all over the place because they had the Arian heresy. And the Seventh-day Adventists, they're all, not the, not the Seventh-day Adventists, the, uh, mm -hmm. the Arian too? Well, they're not technically Arian. Okay. The, Jehovah's Witnesses, they are Arian. They still don't believe in the divinity of Christ. We believe in the divinity of Christ, and we believe all the signs and prophecies were fulfilled in his incarnation. Now, we don't kill people. Christ did one sacrifice for all. It's always present amongst us in the Blessed Sacrament. So when the priest always, the bloodless sacrifice of the Holy Sacrifice of the Eucharist, he is their body, blood, soul, divinity. His glorified body in heaven has the marks of the passion He's a sacrifice. And he's our gift to the Father because only he could make that gift, truly human and truly divine. Christmas, the Annunciation, Christmas, the birth of the Savior, is the beginning of our incorporation in the hypothesis of each of us. So I say to you, you should be like the early Christians, praying night and day. When the Antichrist came, you know, or one of them anyway, Julian the Apostate, he couldn't stand the Christians because they were merciful and they healed. When the plague hit the Rome and Constantinople, the Christians, took care of their neighbors. They brought them back down. But they took those same neighbors and killed them in the Colosseum because they were not a people of mercy. They were not a people of love. But gradually, they could not resist the love of Christ. And I say, can you resist the love of the small child who came into the world just for you? Can you resist a pure virgin now, yesterday in the readings, we came across Lucifer. Because the legends say Lucifer would find a pure virgin 
in order to conceive the Antichrist. It's interesting. Because in the feast of Our Lady, when she leaves the temple, it's a great controversy. Because she has to be protected from whom? Especially Lucifer. So Joseph, the other figure today in the stable, they, they got the eligible men from her tribe. Nobody married somebody they didn't know. And they placed on the altar in the temple, each man had a walking stick, a rod. And then they put Mary behind the altar. They didn't let her out of the temple. And then each man picked up his rod. And when Joseph picked up the rod, it bloomed. He was the one. I'll tell you where you learn these things, in the propers of our liturgy and the canons, from the, especially from the feast days. It's just booming with theology. And this feast has whole courses written about it, Christology. We spent many, many hours on Christology, but we didn't study too much the East. But East is the closest to the apostles. In the fourth century, these things came together. They preserved them. And they gave you the memoir of the apostles, the scripture. And I read the scripture, I find all these things. But you have to be studied. You have to really know. And you have to have a little Greek. And you have to be in love with Christ. God the Father, so loved the world that he gave you his only Son. And this Son came amongst us to make us the new Israel, the children of God. And our salvation is intimately connected with the passion, death, and resurrection and the birth of the Savior. Rejoice in this feast and meditate and ponder and know that you are saved. You have a hypostasis of your own, a union with God. You participate in it. Christ is his by nature and you participate. Like we see the light in the room and we can see because Christ is in us our immortal souls, and he has come, and he reaches out to us and gives us through the sacraments. We are hypostatically part of God's life by participation. Very interesting thing. The pagans were very religious people, but they just had the wrong religion. But Christ did not ignore it. And somehow, he used their signs and symbols to make the redemption take place. One thing they did is they had very little respect for their children. They would set them out and let them die. But this was an adorable child. 
And it's even the man he had to be saved in Egypt and all these places. Because God is in him. He is God. And because he is God, through his incarnation, you partake of divine nature. It's in the epistles, James 2, first line. You will be partakers of divine nature. Well, so what I'm saying to you is this. It's your birthday. Name the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.